it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. stories. I'm your host, Bobby Holmes. Before we get started, I want to acknowledge the fact that I do realize this episode is late. I have decided not to stress myself out over deadlines and work on something until it's complete, then release it. My goal is weekly, typically on Wednesdays, but I'm not going to sleep deprive myself or take time away from my family to get it done. This episode has a lot going on, and I did not want to leave anything out. I would like to give a shout out to listener Alex Stone. Alex sent an email after listening to the murder of Cordell Richards last week. Alex said, I just want to let you know that I thought today's episode was excellent. I'm from London in the UK. I've been listening to your podcast for some time, and I always find it interesting. Keep up the good work. Thank you for tuning in each week for your true crime fix, Alex. Summer can be hard for parents. What can you do to keep your children occupied? A good option is to sign them up for some sort of summer camp. Or is it? This week's case will make you think twice about shipping your child off to camp this summer. This is the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders. Camp Scott opened as a Girl Scout camp in 1928. The property for the camp was donated by the Scott family, hence the name. It is located in the Cookson Hills just south of Locust Grove, Oklahoma. Camp Scott was operated by the Magic Empire Council of Girl Scouts headquartered in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Girls attending Camp Scott were from the surrounding six counties and ranged in age from second grade to seniors in high school. The girls participated in activities like boating, hiking, camping, and fishing, along with arts and crafts. The camp was divided into 10 units named after Native American tribes. Cherokee, Comanche, Kiowa, Quapa, Arapaho, Osage, Chickasaw, Creek, Seminole, Cedar Lodge, and Choctaw. I looked up pronunciations before recording, but I'm sure I messed up at least one of those. Each unit housed permanent wooden tent floors set a few feet off the ground. So not a pop-up tent, but not a cabin either. 
On top of these wooden floors was a canvas tent with slit openings that tied shut. Inside, there were four cots for sleeping. Camp Scott had enough space to sleep 140 children and 30 counselors. The counselors were girls aged 15 to 25. In early summer of 1977, Camp Scott is gearing up for the annual Girl Scout trip. The counselors arrive early to complete training sessions prior to the scouts' attendance. One evening, a counselor noticed that her things had been rummaged through. She had a small box of donuts that was now empty. Well, the donuts were gone, but someone left a note inside. She unfolded the paper and read, We are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. She was really shook up about the note and gave it to her superior. The director of the camp read the note and dismissed it as a prank. If only this note was taken more seriously. Nine-year-old Michelle Gousset had attended Camp Scott the year prior and was beyond excited to spend two weeks camping with friends. She was relatively shy, but had a love for plants and the outdoors. Before she left, she gave her mother instructions on how to take care of her plants while she was gone, especially her African violets. Ten-year-old Doris Denise Milner, who went by her middle name, heard stories about Camp Scott from her friends, so this year she worked extra hard selling Girl Scout cookies to qualify for camp. But at the last minute, her friends backed out. Denise wasn't one to back out of anything, and she worked so hard for this opportunity, she was going to see it through. She was a straight-A student. In fact, the following school year, she was going to attend a program for gifted children. But on June 12th, as the bus pulled out to leave for camp, Denise began crying at the thought of being without her friends and leaving her mother and little sister. She sat next to a counselor on the bus who consoled her. She told Denise that she should give it a day and could call her mom the next morning if she wanted to go home. The youngest girl attending Camp Scott was eight-year-old Lori Lee Farmer. Lori's father was the emergency room doctor at Tulsa's St. John's Medical Center. He raised Lori to be a bright young girl, wise beyond her years, others say. In fact, she scored 130 on an IQ test and was able to skip the second grade. Lori was really excited for her first year at Camp Scott. Multiple Greyhound buses arrived at camp between 3.30 and 4 p.m. The younger girls were stationed in Camp Kiowa. The unit had tents set up in a semicircle. Most of the tents in each unit had four girls, all except Tent 8. The three girls assigned to that tent, you guessed it, Michelle Gousset, Denise Milner, and Lori Farmer. For those watching on YouTube, I have a visual of the layout of the tents at Camp Kiowa. You can see the tent number eight is on the farthest end. The counselors were in the tent at the other end of the semicircle. On the cartoony looking map, the tents look pretty close, but from the aerial view, you can see that there are trees between each tent. The ends of the semicircle were more than 80 yards apart, so they were pretty spread out. Once they had settled into their tents, it was time to gather at the hall for dinner. Afterwards, it began to rain, so the girls sat in their tents and wrote letters to their families. Michelle wrote to her aunt, 
Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I am fine. I'm writing from camp. We can't go outside because it is storming. Me and my tent mates are in the last tent in our unit. My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is in shades of purple. Love, Michelle. Lori wrote to her entire family. Dear Mom and Dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy. We're just getting ready to go to bed. It's 7.45. We're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I've met two new friends, Michelle Gousset and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started raining on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because there's hardly anything else to do. With love, Lori. And Denise wrote to her mom. Dear mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day it rained. I have three new friends named Glenda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Kathy and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. Honestly, it breaks my heart to read these letters out loud knowing what happens to them just a few hours later. While sitting around the campfire telling stories, Denise told her counselor she was homesick and wanted to call her mom. It was getting late, and the counselor promised she could call her mother in the morning. The counselors never get much sleep on the first night because the girls are excited and loud. Around midnight, one of the counselors, Carla Wilhite, heard a group of girls giggling outside near the bathrooms. The four girls walked there together and were making quite a ruckus. She escorted them back to their tent and told them to quiet down and get some sleep. Then, again, around 1.30 a.m., the girls in tent six could be heard chatting and giggling. Carla's tent was close enough that she could just step outside and shine a flashlight towards them and yell, get back to bed. While she was outside her tent, Carla heard a noise coming from the woods behind tent one and two. She assumed it was an animal making a, quote, low guttural sound, almost like moaning. She shined her light in that direction and the sound stopped. As soon as she turned around, it started up again. She flung around once more, shining her light through the trees. The sound stopped and she didn't see anything. She climbed back into her cot and laid there, listening to that strange sound off in the distance. Barely getting any sleep at all, Carla got up around six so that she could take a shower before the girls woke up. The sun was just starting to rise. As she walked towards the showers, she noticed something on the ground. As she got closer, she could see it was a sleeping bag, and there were three in total. One was unzipped. She approached and saw one of the young girls, Denise Milner, lying on top. She was deceased, naked from the waist down, and her hands were tied behind her back with duct tape. Carla hysterically ran back to her tent and woke up her co-counselor, D. She said they needed to check on all the girls and do a head count. Carla started at tent one and D started at tent eight and they were to meet in the middle around tent four. It didn't take long for D to shout out to Carla. Tent eight was empty and there was visible blood splatter inside. Carla informed the director of the camp, Barbara Day. Barbara's husband went to check the area and confirmed there were three girls. 
inside the other two sleeping bags pushed down to the bottom were the little bodies of Lori Farmer and Michelle Gousset. He called 911, and before you knew it, girls were being packed up and shipped back home on Greyhound buses. Chaos ensued Camp Scott as police flooded the grounds to start an investigation. The news of three young girls dying at Camp Scott had already hit the media. The Magic Empire Council of Girl Scout headquarters were responsible for calling the families of Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Gousset. But this is way before cell phones. If no one was home, this isn't the kind of message to leave on an answering machine. The farmers were not home, so they called the next person on the emergency contact list, a family friend. They answered and were told Lori died at Camp Scott in an accident, and could they break the news to the farmers? Almost as bad as leaving it on the answering machine. No details were shared yet as the investigation was just starting. They said the girls died in an accident, then reluctantly mentioned foul play as the likely scenario. Parents openly cried as they waited for their daughters to exit the bus safe and sound. They trusted the staff at Camp Scott to take care of their daughters, keep them safe. How could this have happened? Autopsies showed that all three girls had been sexually assaulted. Semen and hair follicles were collected into evidence. They were bludgeoned and ultimately strangled to death. According to the crime scene, it seemed as if Lori and Michelle were killed inside of the tent, whereas Denise was first dragged or coerced to walk outside. Near the bodies, investigators found rope, duct tape, a flashlight, and a pair of women's eyeglasses. The flashlight had tape over the end so that only a small amount of light was able to shine, making it more discreet. A piece of newspaper was shoved into the battery compartment to keep them from jiggling around and making noise. The paper was the April 17, 1977 edition of the Tulsa World, pages 5 through 12, section C. There was a fingerprint found on the flashlight, but that fingerprint was never linked to anyone. The women's eyeglasses found actually belonged to one of the campers. They reported their glasses missing and apparently had been taken by the killer, yet left behind. In fact, there were multiple campers who noticed their eyeglasses were moved or missing. This raised suspicion. Did the killer have some sort of fetish for women's eyeglasses, or was he in need of a pair and searching for ones that fit his prescription? Some of the girls from the Kiowa campsite stated they heard a scream and someone crying for their mama in the middle of the night. The girls in Tent 7 said at one point a man approached their tent, stuck his head inside, and then left. The only thing they remembered about the man was that he was wearing army boots. Another group stated they heard two men walking around outside of their tent. Inside Tent 8, there was a footprint found inside of a pool of blood. It seemed to be a boot with a lot of tread. Men's size nine and a half. A thorough search of Camp Scott and the surrounding areas was conducted in an attempt to find any evidence that could help point to the killer or killers. Near the perimeter of the camp, close to a fence line, authorities found a crowbar and beer bottles. 
Just about one mile away from camp was a ranch owned by Jack Schroff. Police interviewed Jack, and he reported being burglarized recently. Whoever it was stole food, along with duct tape, beer, and rope, which all could be found at or near the crime scene. Helicopter and canine searches didn't turn up anything more than another pair of women's eyeglasses. Unbeknownst to the general public, but well-known to local hunters, were a few small caves about three miles from Camp Scott. Inside one of those caves, there was evidence to support someone had been squatting in there. There were four areas where small fires had burned. Was there more than one person, or did they move the fire around from night to night? One of the local officers brought up that there may be more to it. He stated the number four is sacred to many Native American tribes. It represents the four seasons, the four human needs, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, the four kingdoms, animal, mineral, plant, and human, the four sacred medicines, sweetgrass, tobacco, cedar, and sage. Perhaps the squatter was Native American. There were food wrappers, duct tape, two photographs, and a newspaper. The exact same issue that was used to stuff inside the flashlight battery compartment. If that wasn't enough evidence to prove the squatter was our murderer, written on the walls inside of the cave was, The killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. Killer, not killers. I feel like that's important to mention because the original note preluding to the murder said we are on a mission, and some of the girls stated they heard two men outside. Yet, here it states killer, singular, conflicting information. Investigators closely examined the photos found at the cave. They seemed to be from a wedding. Someone recognized the photos as belonging to Sheriff Weaver. They were located in his office, and still were. While incarcerated at Granite Reformatory, inmate Jean Leroy Hart dabbled in photography. It is thought that he copied the wedding photos that were in Sheriff Weaver's office. But if Jean is in prison, how could he possibly be the killer? Well, he escaped from prison and had been on the run for the past four years. When Hart was 22 years old, he abducted two women, both who were pregnant, from a nightclub in Tulsa. And before anyone chimes in with a negative comment, pregnant women are allowed to go out and have a good time too. Just because they were at a nightclub does not mean they were drinking. Could have been a moms-to-be night out on the town. He took the women to a remote wooded area where he raped them, covered their mouths with duct tape, and buried them with leaves and other debris. Fortunately, the women were able to escape and identify Jean Leroy Hart as their attacker. Hart pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. He would be granted parole after serving only 28 months. Two and a half years and 30 years is a big difference. In 1969, Hart was arrested again, this time four counts of first-degree burglary. He had burglarized three homes in the Tulsa area while the occupants were sleeping, and his last burglary was of an apartment of a female Tulsa police officer. 
He pleaded not guilty this time around, and he ended up being sentenced to over 300 years in prison. Then he escaped in 1973, meaning he was on the run in 1977 during the time of the Girl Scout murders. The DA made a public announcement that they officially have a suspect in the case, the escaped prisoner, Jean Leroy Hart. This area of Oklahoma had a very large population of Native Americans, including Hart. The locals started claiming that the cops were just trying to pin this on him because of his race. Hart was quite the football star in his day and still had a large fan base, even though he's a convicted rapist. That's a head-scratcher. But the officer who brought up the significance of the four fires was also Native American, It didn't seem to be about race, just where the evidence was pointing. But the locals weren't having it. Some people were willing to cooperate with police and assist in the search. Through the grapevine, police got word that Hart was being housed by a medicine man named Sam Pigeon. A medicine man is a traditional healer and spiritual leader who serves a community of indigenous people. While this medicine man was nowhere to be found... His wife was. The police questioned her regarding his whereabouts, but she remained tight-lipped. Until police threatened to arrest her for withholding information and or housing a fugitive, and she cracked. Sam Pigeon and Hart were hiding out in a remote shack in the Cookson Hills of Cherokee County. When police arrived, suspiciously, Hart was wearing a pair of women's eyeglasses. Ten months after the deaths of Michelle, Denise, and Lori, Hart was arrested on three counts of first-degree murder. Sam Pigeon was later arrested for aiding and abetting. After the arrest, Hart's supporters went into overdrive, raising money at local businesses and restaurants to pay for his defense. March 5, 1979, the hearing began. Hart pled not guilty. The main piece of physical evidence the prosecution team had was the semen and hair found on all three of the girls' bodies. But remember, this is 1979. Forensics were not what they are today. They could not prove a 100% match. The samples were considered similar to that of Hart's. Three out of five probes were a match. The defense stated that the bloody footprint found inside the tent was a nine and a half, and Hart was a size 11. But the girls in the surrounding tent said they heard two men outside. The note left in the donut box prior to camp said, we, we are going to kill three girls. What if Hart was responsible but had an accomplice? Another suspect was brought to light during the trial. 22-year-old William Stevens. A woman named Joyce Payne and her son, Larry Short, testified that Stevens came to their home the day the Girl Scouts were killed. He had scratches on his arms and red stains on his shoes. Stevens was serving time for an unrelated rape charge. His cellmate just so happened to be Joyce Payne's boyfriend, Dwayne Peters. Peters also came forward stating Stevens confessed he killed the girls while having a war game hallucination. 
Not sure what war game includes sexual assault. Also, what about the note preluding to the murders? If this was a crime due to a hallucination, how do you explain that? Apparently, Joyce was feeding Dwayne information about the murders, and they thought if he could implicate Stevens, he would be freed or receive a lesser sentence. But William Stevens had an alibi. He was working during the time of the murders in Seminole and had a time card stamp to prove it. Joyce Payne and her son, Larry Short, were later charged with perjury. Ultimately, the jury did not find there was enough evidence to prove Jean Leroy Hart guilty without reasonable doubt. The final verdict was not guilty. What is weird to me is that they only deliberated for 25 minutes. That isn't much time for 12 people to discuss much of anything. Perhaps some Locust Grove High School football fans on the jury. Regardless of the verdict, Hart was sent straight back to prison to finish his 309-year sentence he previously escaped from. If he is responsible, why deny it? You are already going to be in prison for the rest of your life. Hart died two months later from a heart attack after lifting weights in the prison gym. In 1985, two of the victims' families filed a $5 million negligence lawsuit against Magic Empire Council, chartered by Girl Scouts of the USA and its insurer. They ignored the menacing note found weeks prior, also because of the lack of security at Camp Scott. There were no gates or fencing separating the camp from the outside world. Anyone could enter. Tent 8 was 86 yards from the counselor's tent, and the view was blocked by the showers. The tents themselves were not able to be fully closed or locked in any way, meaning anyone who wanted to enter could. The family's lawyer argued that someone should have been on 24-hour patrol around the camp to keep the girls safe. I understand where they're coming from, I really do, but this is all in hindsight, The camp had been operating for nearly 50 years without incident. This was 1977, and people were still in the mindset that bad things like this just didn't happen. The jurors ruled in favor of the Magic Empire by a 9-3 decision. Camp Scott closed following the murders and never reopened. I mean, how could they? Who would want to attend camp where three young girls were brutally murdered? No way you could relax and enjoy yourself. In 2008, the semen samples were retested but considered too degraded. In 2019, Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation consulted with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, where the case was assessed by 23 homicide investigators, FBI behavioral analysts, and profilers. After a month, every one of them agreed that Jean Leroy Hart committed the murders. In 2022, authorities released the news that results of the DNA evidence strongly suggest Hart's involvement. The DNA results have been known since 2019, but did not go public until approved by the victims' families. Mays County Sheriff Reed said, quote, 
Unless something new comes up, something brought to light that we are not aware of, I am convinced where I'm sitting of Hart's guilt and involvement in this case, unquote. But to me, this is still a bit muddy. Strongly suggests involvement is not the same as 100% Hart is the murderer. Do I think he's the murderer? Yeah, but I'm talking about the evidence to prove it. In May of 2022, a documentary series called Keeper of the Ashes, the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders, was released on Hulu. It's hosted by Kristen Chenoweth. She was supposed to attend Camp Scott the summer of 1977, but had to cancel last minute due to an illness. I haven't had a chance to watch yet, but it's added to my watch list. What do you think? Was Jean Leroy Hart responsible? The women's eyeglasses keep tripping me up. I know that isn't enough evidence to say that he's the murderer, but to me that implicated he was at the camp. Leave your comment below if you're watching on YouTube, or you can join in the convo via social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Killer Stories Podcast and on Twitter at Killer Story Pod. You can always email me, killerstoriespodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing your feedback and adding to my list of story suggestions. If you would like to support the show, you can leave a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash killerstories. Big shout out to Aaron Franklin, who bought me five beers. Greatly appreciated. As always, thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this has been a killer story. Killer story.